Jonah chapter number one this morning. Man, what a blessing to come in the house of God. We enjoy having church around here. And um, I say that, you know, we've got a lot of visitors here this morning. Some some folks been trying to figure us out and everything. We enjoy having church. And uh, I will tell you this, if you like to come to church and be miserable, this is a terrible place to go to church. And uh, if, if you take yourself too seriously, or if you take the Lord not seriously enough, then uh, this is going to be a hard place for you to go to church. If you take yourself more seriously than you take the Lord, it's going to be a hard place. But uh, I'm, I'm glad we can come and enjoy being in the house of God together. Now, life's too short to be miserable all the time. There's some folks who have made an Olympic sport out of being miserable. And I don't want to be that way. I want to enjoy the life that God's given me. Now, Peter talked about us being heirs together of the grace of life. Uh, now, stop and think about that phrase. i got a message. I'm going to preach it here in a moment. But think about that phrase, heirs together of the grace of life. When we think of grace, our mind automatically goes to transcendent spiritual truths and realities. But the word grace means the blessing of God, unmerited favor of God. Peter says the grace of life. He doesn't say the grace of the Lord. Now, I hope you are a partaker in the grace of the Lord. And I will tell you that life has no grace if you don't know the Lord's grace. But there is a grace to living for the Lord. There are blessings to living for God. And Peter says we are heirs of the grace of life. God didn't call you and me to be miserable. He called us to to rejoice in the Lord. And so I think we ought to be able to enjoy coming in the house of God. Amen. I hope that you enjoy already being here today. And the best is yet to come if God speaks to our hearts. Jonah chapter number one this morning. We're going to read the entirety of this chapter, but it's not very long. Seventeen verses. You'll survive that. And um, I was I was talking to my son the other day and well last night. And, you know, they're, they're at that age. They fight all the time. And um, they's in there. They's fussing and everything. I said, Lawrence, what's the matter with you? He said. Uh, Schofield was, was copying me. I said, and you survived. <laughs> he didn't think it was very funny. But um, you'll survive 17 verses this morning, I'm confident. Jonah chapter number 1. Number 1, the Bible says, Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. And they said, Every one to his fellow, Come and let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us. What is thine occupation, and whence comest thou? What is thy country, and of what people art thou? And he said unto them, I am an Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid, and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then said they unto him, What shall we do unto thee that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. And he said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea. 
so shall the sea be calm unto you. For I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to the land. But they could not, for the sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. Wherefore they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not upon us innocent blood, for thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for the house of God, and thank you for the people of God. What a, what a blessing it's already been to my heart this morning just to be in this place. But Lord, surely in a group this size, there's a few things that just statistically we could imagine are true. One, in a group this size, it would be reasonable to think there could be someone that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Lord, you chose 12 disciples, and one of them was a devil. One of them didn't know you. Lord, in a group this size, it wouldn't be a surprise if there's one that's lost. But Lord, you love them and you care about them. I know that because you died for them on Calvary just as you did for me. And I pray that you'd help them through the, through the ministration of the Holy Spirit, through his conviction to see that reality this morning. And Lord, show them that they can be saved today. Their life can be changed. They can have peace with you. And Lord, also in a group this size, it wouldn't be a surprise if there'd be one who somewhere in the corner of their heart, there is some matter undealt with, some area of disobedience unto you, Lord, some, some matter of rebellion. And I pray if that's true, that you'd show that to them. Lord, they already know, no doubt, of that, of that occasion, but I pray that you'd show it to them in bold face type this morning. Show them that, that desperate need of getting that matter right with you. Now, Lord, I pray that you'd bless our time together and may it magnify Jesus Christ. We ask it in his precious name. Amen. Jonah chapter number one is one of the most fascinating chapters in the entirety of the Word of God. My, uh, Jonah, of course, is one of the minor Now, we don't call them minor because they're less important, but we call them minor just simply due to the size of them. But Jonah, as a minor prophet, is also unique in that it is almost entirely narrative in nature. Most of the other minor prophets are, well, prophetic. They deal with with images and and words and concepts and truths, and, and they sound forth God's word to a nation in rebellion. But the book of Jonah is not a book about a nation in rebellion, but rather the book of Jonah is a book about a person in rebellion. And it is the story of this man Jonah and his running from the Lord and God's patient grace and working in his life. We could say it this way, that the book of Jonah, particularly chapter number 1, provides for us a picture of a man on the run. Say, so what do you mean by that, preacher? I mean a man that's running from God. It's a sad reality, but there are a great many people that run from the Lord. And you know, it's interesting. You can only run from the Lord because the Lord's trying to get to you in the first place. He loves you. He cares about you. He has a plan for your life. Beyond that, He knows what's best for your life. And He has the ability to bless and favor your life and use it for His glory and for eternal benefit. And so God is dealing with Jonah throughout chapter number 1. But Jonah is running from the Lord. 
when we read this passage, we find that there are three great things that God prepares in Jonah chapter number 1. And I want you to notice them with me this morning. I'll go ahead and list them. In the first three verses, we find that the Lord had prepared a great word for Jonah's life. God commanded Jonah to do something. You know, Jonah did not begin being a prophet at this moment in his life. He had actually had a rather long and illustrious career as a prophet, a calling, a vocation as a prophet. We're told just glimpses of it elsewhere in the Word of God. But here in this passage, Jonah receives a word that he doesn't want to hear. You know, even if we've been following God, that doesn't mean we can't go wrong. I hope you've been following the Lord in your life. I hope, number one, you followed Him when you believed on the Lord for salvation. If you've never been saved, that's the very first step. You can't have a relationship with God outside of first being saved. Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If you have a relationship with God, that has been provided and facilitated and a way made for it by the Lord Jesus Christ. But then beyond that, God's not done with you when you get saved. God's just beginning with you when you get saved. I don't mean to suggest that your salvation is not complete, but I mean that God's plan for your life has just begun and God begins to work in your life and grow you and cultivate growth in you and develop you into the Christian that He'd have you to be. And there are some that you say, Preacher, I've served God for many long years, but are you serving Him now? Preacher, I've walked with God many long years. Praise the Lord. That's wonderful. But are you walking with Him now? Preacher, I've bowed the knee to the Lord long ago. Yes, but is your knee still bowed to Him today? See, Jonah's a man that had a long career of serving the Lord, but then this word comes into his life and he makes the wrong choice. God prepares a great word in verses 1 through 3. And then from verse 4 down to verse number 12, we could say this, that God prepared a great wind. In other words, when Jonah begins to run from the Lord, the Lord doesn't say, well, oh, well, I guess he's gone. Instead, the Lord pursues after him. Praise God for the pursuit of grace. Praise God for the pursuit of his heart and of his loving kindness. You know, people that you love, you follow after. You try to you try to reclaim them. You try to redeem them. You try to restore them. And the Lord was not done with Jonah, but instead He pursued after him with a great wind. And then in the very closing verse of this chapter, although we'll consider it from verse 13 to the end, we find that God had prepared a great whale for Jonah. Now, somebody will say, wait a minute, preacher. The Bible says here that it's a fish, but in the New Testament it says it's a whale. So which is it, preacher? And I say, yes. I say, I don't know why we're letting Darwinists determine taxonomy. Amen. If if my Bible says it's a fish and a whale, uh, then it is both things. doesn't matter uh, how it gives birth. doesn't matter the nature uh, of its circulatory system. If God says it's both, I don't mind recognizing the distinction between the two. But I wouldn't foolishly charge the God that created them all in suggesting that he mislabeled them when he spoke about them. And so it was a great fish. What kind of fish, preacher? Well, it was a whale. And you say, preacher, it was a whale. What kind of whale was it? It was a big old fish. God prepared this great whale for Jonah. When everything fell apart, God still had a plan. And so I want to preach to you this morning on that thought, a man on the run. 
And I want us to look at Jonah, and I want us to notice some things about how a man begins to run from God, what it looks like when a man runs from God, and what God does in response to a man running from Him. This is important information, because if you are made of flesh and blood, you'll probably have an instance or two in your life when you will run from God. And you might be sitting here today saying, Preacher, I'm even now running from God. Well, I want you to hear carefully the Word of God this morning, and let it work in your heart. Number one this morning... Let's look at this great word that God prepared. Verse number one, the Bible says this. Now, the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. Here in these verses, we find the prophet's calling. Now, this, I think, has been an oft-misunderstood portion of Scripture. I think people have misattributed to Jonah all sorts of wrong motives. Not that his true motive was any more noble than the wrong motives that people have given. But to understand the decision that Jonah makes, it would help us to understand what God's asking of him. Nineveh is a Gentile city. In fact, it's not just a Gentile city. In that time, it was the Gentile city. It was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And God is commanding this prophet of Israel. Now let's stop and consider what that means to him. His understanding is that God's people are the Jewish people. His understanding is that God's place is in Israel. His understanding is that the relationship between Gentile and Jew is that one day God will bring the Gentiles into subjugation to the Jews and they will live in blessing and favor in a kingdom. In fact, in Jonah's economy of thinking, there was no place for the Gentile in regards to his relationship with God. He viewed them as heathens. He viewed them as savages. He viewed them as barbarians. He viewed them as people whom God should have nothing to do with. There's all kinds of people that think God shouldn't have uh, anything to do with certain kinds of people. I'm glad the Lord isn't worried about men's opinions. And so God is calling Jonah to go to this place, Nineveh. Now, I've heard some people say, well, preacher, he didn't want to go because he's a coward. He didn't want to go because he was scared. He didn't want to go because he was afraid of what they would do to him. There's two problems with that. One is this, simply. A man that's afraid of losing his life doesn't look at a bunch of sailors in the midst of a storm and say, throw me overboard and let me die. But then number two, it seems apparent to me that Jonah was speeding towards his own demise because he would rather die than live with God's judgment upon his life. And you say, what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, I mean this. I think Jonah knew that it wasn't going to be no uh, cakewalk when he ran from God. I think he understood things weren't going to go smoothly. So what could motivate a man to be willing to take the path that Jonah has taken? Well, you know, later on in chapter number 3, when the Ninevites repent, and they do indeed repent, they believe on the Lord, they trust in God, uh, they believe in the God of Israel and the God of the Bible, and God honors that and responds to that uh, by accepting them. Whenever that that happens, Jonah makes this complaint. He says, was this not my saying when I was in my own country? Now, he's sulking on God, he's miserable, he's pouting on God, and he says, Lord, I knew this was going to happen. Stop and think about the comedy of that moment. Imagine an evangelist preaching the greatest uh, meeting that he's ever preached, having literally uh, hundreds of thousands of people saved, and then sitting down and pouting and saying, well, I knew this was going to happen. I know if we went and preached the gospel, these people get saved. Why would Jonah say that? Well, here's the very simple reason. Jonah was prophet enough to understand the lay of the land in his day. Jonah was prophesying during a time of deep, steep rebellion in the land of Israel. And he understood enough about the Lord to know that most of the time when the Lord judged Israel, God used the swords of men to do it. 
And I think he understood that the most likely agent of God's judgment on Israel was probably the Assyrians. And I think it was not fear or cowardice. I think it was a misunderstanding of the nature and desire of God and a misapplied patriotism that led Jonah to this decision. He was simply saying this, if God spares the Ninevites, God will have to use the Ninevites to judge the Israelites. But he probably thought to himself, if I can run from God long enough that God kills me and no one can bring the message to the Ninevites, then God will have to judge the Ninevites and maybe that will give a space of grace for the people of Israel. In other words, I think Jonah understood fully what he was doing here. And there's two things that we learn from this verse about what God's calling on his life meant. Notice, number one, that God had a great plan for his life. In other words, God was not scratching his head trying to figure out what to do with Jonah's life. God knew what he wanted to do with Jonah's life. Can I tell you this this morning before we even really get into the preaching, because we ain't even really in the preaching yet. I'll let you know when we get there. Can I tell you God has a plan for your life? You may not think that's a big deal, but oh, if you see the plans that God devises, you'd be amazed what God can do with your life. You know, when you're running from God, you're running from the only person that has a plan for your life. What can you be running towards except chaos? You're running from the one that knows all and the one that controls all and the one that has possession and resources of all. And he's the one you're running from. What kind of plan do you think you could have that could be better than the plan that God has devised for your life? It's the very reason the best thing you can do is stop right now in the tracks of your rebellion and turn back to the God that has a perfect plan for your life. Not only did God have a plan for his life, a great plan for his life, but God had a great purpose for his life. You may say, well, preacher, that sounds like a distinction without a difference. No, I mean to say this. Jonah didn't know what he was doing. He didn't know where he was going. He was just running. He wasn't running to anything. He was running from something. He had no end game for any of this except that he die under the judgment of God. But God had a greater plan for his life. But then in addition to that, that great plan involved a great purpose that God would have him to fulfill. In other words, it wasn't merely that he would live out his days enjoying financial ease and, and familial friendship and, and love and support. God had something for Jonah to do. I'll tell you, one of the reasons the devil would love to kill you is because God has a great purpose for your life. I'm not preaching on it this morning, but you can preach a whole passage, a whole message on suicide from this chapter. Jonah says, throw me into the sea and kill me. He doesn't want to live anymore. You know, it's the desire of Satan to rob God of the potential of your life and to rob you of the potential of your life. Why is Satan so fixated on death and destroying God's creation? Why is he trying to, to weave a spell around a generation of obsession with death and with suicide? Why is he doing that? Because he knows that if you get serious with God, he's in trouble. He knows there's a great purpose God has for your life. It's not just to live out your days, to run out the clock. God was going to, I mean, you understand what, what happens in, in, in the book of Jonah. I think it's easy to sometimes just, just gloss over it. I, I mean, an entire, one of the biggest cities in the world experienced revival because the purpose of God was fulfilled in Jonah's life. Amen. No telling what God could do with your life. Verses 1 and 2, we see the prophets calling. But then in verse number 3, we see the prophets running. Notice in verse 3, we see Jonah's decision. Verse 3, but Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. 
This is the fateful decision that Jonah makes. He is faced with the prospect. I don't understand. It's not what I would have chosen. It wouldn't have been my plan. But God, you know what is best for me. So I will bow the knee and I will follow you hand in hand. Or I will go my own direction and make my own decision. Jonah runs. He flees to a place called Tarshish. But it's interesting the way the Holy Ghost tells us this. It says he rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. I tell you that when you're running from God, you're not really running to anything. You're running from something. Jonah's running from the presence of the Lord. He's doing everything he can to get as far away from the presence of the Lord as he possibly can. Because Jonah, in his heart of hearts, he understood there was nothing waiting for him in Tarshish. He just thought that was as far away as he could possibly get. You know, it's an amazing thing that we would think we could run from the presence of the Lord. We find in this passage that at no point does Jonah escape the sight of God. You know, Jonah in chapter number two, I'm going to make a bold statement and, uh, the, and, and, and then it'll be made. <laughs> I was going to say you might like it or not like it. I really don't know what you'll think about it, but I believe in Jonah chapter number two that Jonah dies. I don't believe he, he, now, uh, I will say this, that historically and medically it would have been possible for him to have survived. There are instances uh, historically of, of men being swallowed by whales and, and managing to survive, at least for a duration of time. But it's really silly to try to make this constrained to the laws of medicine and of biology. This is the God of all creation doing this. He can do as he pleases. But then even beyond that, I don't think there's any need to believe that Jonah did survive that entire time. You read Jonah chapter number 2, and it seems apparent to me that Jonah died and that God raised him from the dead. By the way, it's interesting, there's uh, 10, will be 11 uh, people in your Bible uh, that will have been raised from the dead by the time God wraps up his dealings with humanity. And, and it's interesting whether you include Jonah as a part of that list depends on where you position Christ and his resurrection. So I'm not going to get into numerology, but it's a worthwhile thing to consider whether Jonah died or did not die. But here's what I want you to understand. Even when he died, the Bible describes how the Lord saw him even in the belly of that whale. Here's what I'm trying to say this morning. You can't get away from him. You think you can get away from him, but you can't get away from him. It's impossible. I see Jonah's decision. I see his destination. The Bible says he went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish. Now, some people have suggested that what is being implied here is Tarsus, but you look at maps at that time of the world, and Tarsus, the place that he was going, would have been over on the southern tip of Spain itself. It was literally the extent of the known world at the time. In other words, he wasn't trying to go to a place. He was trying to get as far away from the work and calling of God as he could. You know, I've seen people do this when they're running from the Lord. Have you ever had somebody, this may have never happened to you, but I, probably it has if you've been a Christian any amount of time, somebody that you knew that was a friend in the Lord and, and you were brothers, sisters in Christ and, and, and you loved them, you cared about them, and then one day they just quit calling. Then one day they quit answering the calls. Then one day they quit replying to the text. And next thing you know, they've just vanished off the face of the earth. You bump into them down at the Walmart because everybody goes to the Walmart. You, you, I was going to say even heathens go to the Walmart, but I'm more tempted to say almost exclusively heathens go to the Walmart. You bump into them at the Walmart, it's awkward, it's weird, it's strange. Have you ever known somebody like that and then maybe years later known them to get right with the Lord and to come back and to explain why it was that they ghosted you 
and that they would not return your calls. Now, I'm not suggesting this is always the case in every situation. I'll tell you this, when a person gets out of the will of God, they don't want to be around people that are in the will of God. When a person gets out of the will of God, they don't want people to talk about the Lord. That just reminds them of what they're running from. When they, when they get running from the Lord, they don't want to be around people that love the Lord, people that talk about the Lord, people that are interested in the Lord. They sure don't want to be around the house of God or the preaching of the Word of God or the testimonies of the people of God because all those things just remind them of what they're trying to get away from in the first place. I see his decision. I see his destination. But then I see his departure. How did he get there? Well, the Bible says this. He went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof. Went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. I want you to notice one simple truth here, and that's that phrase, he paid the fare thereof. There's always a cost to running from God. It's interesting. I don't know if Jonah really thought about it. There was a cost he was prepared to pay, and there was a cost that he didn't know he'd have to pay. I don't know what Jonah necessarily anticipated altogether. But I do know this, that there's always fine print on the devil's contracts. There's always further terms and services implied. And most of the time when people run from the Lord, they don't expect it to go the way that it does truly go. You think about the prodigal in Luke chapter number 15 who left the father's house, and I'm sure he thought it would all be champagne and songs and friends. But he winds up tending the swine of an unregenerate godless man who doesn't even care enough about him to allow him to share the husks that the swine eat. He would have never thought he would have wound up there. But can I tell you this? When you begin to run from God, there's no telling where you'll wind up. The only thing that keeps you and I moored in life is the Lord. And I see that there's always a cost when we run from God. You may pay it now. You may pay it later. You may pay far more than you think you ever will. But I promise you, sooner or later, there will be. You might pay it in your kids. You might pay it in your, in your, in your marriage. You might pay it in your health. You might pay it in your grandkids. You might pay it in your finances. But sooner or later, you're going to have to pay that fare. I see in this passage that God had prepared a great word. Sadly though, the prophet does not heed that word, but instead runs from it. So here's what the Lord does. Look at verse 4. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Not only did God prepare a great word, but whenever his prophet ran, God prepared a great wind to get his attention. You know, God does this in our life. When we're running from the Lord, God will allow storms in our life to get our attention and our focus upon Him. Now, that's not to suggest that every problem in your life is due to disobedience and rebellion. You say, preacher, wouldn't it be wonderful if there was somewhere we could know whether it's affliction or whether it's conviction? Yeah, it'd be great if God put His Holy Spirit inside of us. Then we could tell, right? I listen, I, I, and I'll not sit and try to parse through and give you situational examples. If you're saved by the grace of God, then the Holy Ghost within you can, can show you whether or not it's God's purging and God's cleansing in your life, or whether or not God is dealing with you over waywardness. And I'll not do the office work of the Holy Spirit. But I will merely say this, that it is certainly true, a, a consistent pattern in the Bible, that when we rebel against God and re- from God, God will bring turmoil and tempestuousness into our life to try to get our attention back upon Him. 
Bible says he sent a great wind into the sea. It reminds us of the storms that enter into our life. The Bible says there was a mighty tempest in the sea. It reminds us of the disturbing distraughtness that we feel within when we're living in rebellion against God. So that the ship was like to be broken. Reminds us how that often our rebelliousness can break the things of our life. It can break our relationships. It can break our mind. It can break our testimony. God allows all this into Jonah's life to try to get his attention. But before we ever get to that great wind, I want you to notice Jonah's response in it. This is terrifying to me, but I have to I have to acknowledge the truth of it in God's word. You know, through all of this, Jonah refuses to bow before the Lord. He refuses to repent. He refuses to turn his heart towards God. And we find that finally this ship was so violent that it caused these men to cast him into the sea. I wish I could tell you that every person that's running from God will get right. But that's not necessarily true. I wish it was. I do. I wish I could, could tell you that, that, that every person that, that runs from God, that they'll, they'll get right. Now, it's true one day they will bow the knee. But that doesn't mean they won't live their life and die in disgrace, shame, and despair. Jonah was prepared to do that. Notice, notice the effect of his rebellion. Notice verse 5 with me. The Bible says, And the mariners were afraid. They had more sense than the prophet did. And cried every man unto his God, and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea, to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. Notice the expression of his rebellion. Jonah's not standing out on the bow of the ship like some angry, grizzled fisherman cursing towards the heavens. He's not Captain Ahab out there screaming and cursing in the face of the storm. Because, you know, often the rebellion that people have in their life doesn't manifest that way. You know how it manifested in his life? He just laid down and went to sleep. He slumbered the sleep of rebellion while the storm was raging around him. (laughs) Ah, Maybe you've never done it, but this preacher's guilty of God coming into my life like a wrecking ball and me being so entrenched in my sin and disobedience that I refuse to acknowledge it. I've never, I don't get on ships because I know better, but I, some of y'all did, some of y'all's in the Navy, some of y'all's in submarines. What's the matter with you people? And and uh, I guess to those that do it quite often, it doesn't bother them. But one of the things people complain of is particularly when there's a storm and it's not a a gentle lull, but it's a violent, jarring, shaking, tossing. It's how difficult it is to sleep on a ship whenever there's a storm that is raging. I don't know that Jonah was necessarily sleeping a sound sleep. I think probably what was more likely is as he drifted in and out, he just refused to get up and go see the damage and destruction that his decisions were causing. My soul. But how often we're guilty of it. God is wrecking everything in our life, but we're too petulant and too stubborn and too miserable to even look up and acknowledge the chaos that is all around us. I see the expression of his rebellion, but then I see the exposing of his rebellion. Verse 7, they said, everyone to his fellow come. Let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. 
So they cast lots and the lot fell upon Jonah. Now, I don't know how they did that. I understand a little bit about what casting lots is in the Bible. I understand there's some distinction between the casting of lots in the book of Acts and the function of the church and, and what's being done here. Undoubtedly, there was some superstition involved by these pagans because it wasn't merely asking us to vote on who we think it is. <laughs> Of course, it would be the Hebrew that was riding along asleep in the bottom of the boat. That's the trouble, amen. That's why you always want to be there when duties are being delegated, amen, or you get the short end. Now, undoubtedly, there was some superstition that was happening here. But God makes sure. God has no reverence for chicken bones. God has no reverence for, for any of that nonsense. But God makes sure that Jonah's sin is exposed. So the lot fell upon Jonah. And then they said unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us. What is thine occupation? And whence comest thou? And what is thy country? And of what people art thou? Boy, I bet he was sweating. Because he didn't have a single good answer to any of those. (laughs) What is thine occupation? I'm a prophet. Whence comest thou? I'm running from the Lord. What is thy country? I'm a Hebrew. What people art thou? Well, we follow the Lord God, Jehovah. You know, the one that conquered most of this area around here. He didn't have a single good answer to give. So he just tells the truth. He said unto them, I'm in Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Let me pause there, by the way. You know, one of the steps of rebellion is is somehow managing to to compartmentalize and make clinical our relationship to the Lord. He says, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. But did he? How did he mean that? He meant that's the God I worship, but he wasn't worshiping him. He meant that's the God I follow, but he wasn't following him. It became no more than a box on a census paper for him. It became cultural and nothing more. You know, that's one of the steps in rebellion in our life is when our Christianity becomes cultural in nature. It's not really about our relationship to God but it's instead about projecting whatever association we want to project. Verse 10 says, Then were the men exceedingly afraid and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord. Why? Because he had told them. There's a lot we could say about this. I've said a bit already, but can I just make an obvious observation here? He eventually got found out. He eventually got found out, but not only did he get found out, he got found out to such a degree that he had to admit what he had done. You know, the, the, the problem with running from God is you can't run fast enough and far enough. He measured the universe in the span of his hand. You can't run. That's what's always so funny. That people believe we can lose your salvation. They say, well, somebody plug, him out and plug me out of his hand. He measured the universe in the span of his hand. If you think you can pluck yourself out of his hand, you better get running. You better sprout wings. Hey, listen, at the end of the day, uh, you can't run far enough to get from him. He will. Be sure your sin will find you out. It will. God knows what's in your heart. I, th- listen, that's true if you're misunderstood. That's true if you are running. God knows what's in your heart. You can't hide it from him. And it is in the interest of God because he can't get your attention. He can't get your heart until he does to sooner or later bring that sin into the light. Not only that, God's justice demands it. How, if he brings the things done in darkness into the light, is he going to do that without exposing the condition of your heart? I see in this passage the exposing of his rebellion. But then look at verse 11. This is terrifying. Then say unto him, what shall we do unto thee that the sea may be calm unto us? 
for the sea wrought and was tempestuous. And he said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea. So shall the sea be calm unto you. For I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Think with me for a moment about the extent of his rebellion. How bad had his running got? How bad had his rebellion gotten? Now, think about the question they ask. What can we do to stop this? Jonah has two options. He chooses option B. Can I tell you what option A would have been? He could have repented and turned back to the Lord. It would have been real simple. He wouldn't have even had to get his clothes wet. He could just bow and said, Lord, you're right. I'm wrong. Lord, you're right. I'm wrong. God, you know what's best. And, and Lord, I want your will for my life and I'm sorry. And guess what? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know what God would have said? I forgive you, my son. Now let's go to Nineveh. I forgive you, my son. I'm not done with you. So how do you know God would do that? Because He did it once a well, spit Him back out. So Jonah could have said, Lord, I'm wrong, you're right. There's a lot of us, man. That's what we need more than anything in our life. We just need to stop and say, Lord, I'm wrong and you're right. I'm wrong and you... And he could have said that and the sea would have just laid down like a precious, like, like, like a lamb on the pasture. But he's unwilling to. Jonah is willing to die for his rebellion. He says, throw me into the sea. It'd be better that I died than that I gave God what he wants. It'd be better that I died than I followed the will and plan of God. Are you scandalized yet? You could be there. You could be there. You could be there. I could be there. You say, preacher, never me. Oh, no, it ain't like you're, you know, somebody, a rough character like a prophet or anything. (laughs) Better people than you or me have done things we'd swear we'd never do. Better people than you and me have been where this man's at. By the way, including this man himself. I don't think heaven is a matter of getting the best seats. But if it was, he'd have better seats than me. And yet here he's saying, Lord, I'd rather die than get right. Preacher, surely somebody wouldn't be like that. I could give you names. I could show you outlines from funeral sermons that I preached of people that'd rather die than get right. See, the reality is, you say, preacher, all that's, well, boy, God's, God's not somebody to mess with. No, you see, sin's not something to mess with. Even at this moment, God would have forgiven Jonah. But he was so addicted to his, his petulance, his bitterness, his, his disobedience, his rebellion, that he'd sooner die than get right with the Lord. So what did God do? Well, here's what God did. God prepared a great word. God prepared a great wind. When that didn't avail, here's what God did. He prepared a great whale. Now, we read about him down in verse 17. But you understand what the whale is a picture of. It is God in his patience, in his mercy, in his grace, in his long-sufferingness, not giving up on Jonah. So, oh, preacher, that doesn't sound very, very uh, fun. That doesn't sound very precious. That doesn't sound very enjoyable. No, because that's the path sin leads you to. But I will tell you what I would have done if I had been God and what you probably would have done if you had been God. In fact, I'll tell you, mm, I'll tell you what I would have done if I was God and used Jonah. Don't get mad at me. It would have went clunk. 
Bye. But that's not what God did. The most unpleasant experience of Jonah's life was an expression of God's long-sufferingness in not condemning him to a watery death, but preserving him for a greater purpose. How did that happen? What did that look like? Notice three things and I'm done. Notice number one, verse 13. This is amazing to me. I, I, I don't, sometimes, man, I'm just amazed by my Bible. Jonah says in verse 12, take me up, cast me forth into the sea. Now, I already told you what I'd do if I'd been God. Could you imagine what I would have done if I'd been these sailors? I would have kicked you off that boat. I mean, I wouldn't have even, I would have heaved. There would have been no plank walking. You would have been hurled from the bow of that ship. But these pagans are better people than I am because look at verse 13. The Bible says, nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to the land, but the kid not, the sea rot, and was tempestuous against them. In God preparing this great whale, trying to get Jonah's attention, an expression of God's mercy and God's patience and God's long-sufferingness, I want you to notice the first thing is the friends that were rowing. Preacher, they weren't friends to him. They were the only friends he had. And when it would have been easy to just throw them overboard, they instead rowed hard as they could to try to rescue him. I wonder what Jonah thought of that. I would imagine it embarrassed him. It should have. That these men that don't know God are fighting hard as they can to keep me from going down this path of destruction. You ought to praise God for the people that row hard in your life. Even when they're rowing your ship in a direction that you don't want to go in. You understand where they're going, right? They're going back towards land. They just set out on this journey. They're going back towards land to try to get back. You know what that means? They're going back towards Israel. They're going back towards Jerusalem. They're going back towards God's country. They're taking Him in the direction He didn't want to go in. Hey, listen, you young people ought to praise God for parents that are rowing hard. You ought to praise God. You ought to praise God for Christian friends you got that are rowing hard to try to get you to land. Don't despise them. Don't resent them. Don't get angry at them. He had friends that were rowing hard. And I praise God for people that have rowed hard in my life to try to keep me from the destruction that I've set myself upon. I see the friends that were rowing, but then I see the faith that was waiting. The Bible says they tried, but they could not. For the sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. Wherefore, they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not upon us innocent blood. For thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. In other words, it was not of those men that they quit too soon. It was of God, because the only way God could get Jonah's attention was in the belly of that whale. You know, sooner or later, if you make people row for you forever... Sooner or later, they won't be able to do it anymore. And I wonder to myself, Vance Havner, you say about the prodigal son that if he'd lived in this day, somebody would have gave him a bed and a sandwich and he would have never gone home. Praise God for the people that row hard to try to get you back to the will of God. But understand that if you refuse to go, sooner or later, they're going to have to pitch you overboard or sink themselves. And let me say to those of you that are rowing hard this morning for somebody you love, you can't let it sink your ship. You can't let it sink your ship. Sooner or later, you have to recognize that there's things only God can do. 
That it's beyond your ability. And it's not for a failure of your rowing that the sea won't quit raging. And that God has to do something that you cannot do in that person's life. This wasn't God being petulant and stubborn. This was God knowing what it would take to get Jonah's attention. I'll tell you this. If God, just in tolerance, in kindness, had turned the switch off on that storm, you know what Jonah would have done? He would have kept riding off towards Tarshish. It took what it took to get his attention. God prepared a great whale. We see the friends that were rowing and the faith that was waiting, but finally we see the fish that was swimming towards them. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I'm not going to say a lot about this. There's a lot to be said about it, but time won't permit it. I will just merely notice this. Things don't get better when you get thrown off the boat. They get worse. But even as it gets worse, that was not an expression of God's impatience with Jonah, but of God's love and long-sufferingness towards him. If you're in the belly of the whale this morning and your running has gotten you there, God's not put you there because he hates you. He's put you there because he's trying to help you. He hasn't put you there because he's done with you. He's put you there because he has a plan for you. The same God that commanded the fish to swallow him, commanded the fish to spit him back up. God wasn't doing this because he was angry with Jonah. I understand the Lord's angry with the wicked every day. But, you know, we, we, when we talk about anthropomorphic things, we talk about God's emotions. We often interpret Him through the lens of our fallen interpretation of those things. Like, you and I get angry, and we sometimes we get angry in a wrong way. But God's never been angry in a wrong way. God's never been angry in an out-of-control way. Was God angry with Jonah? Well, I think He was angry with Jonah's sin. I think He was disappointed in what Jonah was doing. But God didn't send that whale because He hated Jonah. He sent it because He had a plan for him. And this morning, if God has placed you in the belly of a whale in the circumstances of life, or maybe you're not even there yet, but the winds have started to blow, why don't you stop right where you're at and turn back towards Him? There's no nothing avails in running. Don't run from Him. Turn around and run right back to Him this morning. Let's bow together. As a musician comes to play, the altar is open and you know, around here, we you don't have to wait for a single note to be played. If God spoke to your heart about something, you can meet it. You don't have to wait. You don't have to. You just come. Mind the Lord. But I wonder if there'd be somebody, and I'm not going to ask for his hands on this. I, I'm just going to ask you to be honest and sincere in your heart. I wonder if there'd be somebody this morning that'd say, you know, preacher, that's me. To a greater, to a lesser extent. I'm this far in the journey. I'm that far in the journey. But God spoke to my heart this morning about some matter in my life where I've been running from Him. Can I just encourage you? Don't don't run any further. Don't run any longer. Don't run any harder. Just go ahead and come back to Him this morning. He's got a better plan for your life than you've got. And I promise you, you'll be the better for it. Won't you come and meet Him in this altar? Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.